We bow our heads and pray. Almighty God, you've promised that your gracious and holy word will not return to you empty, but it will accomplish what you desire, and it will succeed in the matter for which you have sent it. May your word have its way, we pray, in every heart this day. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Amen. The novelist John Steinbeck uh, was a Nobel Prize winner, and in his novel, East of Eden, he wrote this, the greatest terror a child can have is that he is not loved, and rejection is the hell that he fears. I think everyone in the world has felt rejection. And with rejection comes anger, and with anger comes some kind of crime in revenge for the rejection, and with the crime comes guilt. And there is the story of mankind." End quote. I would agree with Steinbeck that rejection leads to anger, the anger leads to revenge, the revenge leads to guilt, and that is the story of mankind. But that's not the only story out there. There is another story, and it is the story of God. God at work in Jesus Christ. And that story is about God's acceptance of all humanity in Christ. Humanity that has rejected him finds acceptance in Christ. God's acceptance of us comes at a price, and it's a price that God himself is willing to pay through the death of his one and only son. Science informs us. In fact, there is a science of uh, social rejection. And they've done MRIs of people who were experiencing rejection. They're going through this kind of ostracism, when they do an MRI on them, the part of the brain lights up that lights up when they feel actual physical pain. Our gospel reading for today is about Christ's proclamation of grace to his hometown folk and their rejection of that grace and therefore their rejection of him. We look at the gospel reading on the back of your bulletin, beginning at verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, where he had been nurtured as a child. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Well, they had appointed readings for every synagogue service, just as we have appointed readings. You don't have to do it that way, but that's the way they did it. That's the way we do it here. Verse 18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And one of the commentators uh, says that is a Trinitarian statement, okay? The Spirit, that's the third person of the Trinity, of the Lord in this context, it is God the Father, is upon me, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. 
because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Now, who are the poor? The poor are all of those who understand that they have nothing to offer God, that everything they require must come from his gracious, loving hand through Jesus Christ. That's being impoverished spiritually. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Every 50 years in ancient Israel, there was supposed to be, it usually didn't happen, but there was supposed to be a release from debt. Everyone who was in bondage in some way would be released. Everyone who was indebted to someone else would be forgiven the debt. That's the way it was supposed to work. But it actually comes to fruition in the person and work of Jesus. He is proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, the Jubilee year. Your debts are forgiven. Sin is no more. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, and that's a salvation word in Luke's gospel, today, this day, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Now Jesus puts his finger on the problem of the townspeople. And that's Roman numeral one, part A. The people in Nazareth expect preferential treatment from Jesus. They expect preferential treatment from Christ. You see, they assumed that if he was doing amazing things in Capernaum, which is not his native village after all, then when he comes to his hometown, he will do at least that much for the people and more. That's the issue. If you did great things elsewhere, you'll do even more for us. You owe it to us. We nurtured you when you were growing up. We know you. Number one, to ask for a sign is to reject the word. See, the only reason you ask for a sign is that you don't believe the word that's already been spoken. You want more proof. The words aren't enough proclamation of liberty and forgiveness won't cut it. It's unbelief in action. I quote Romans, or I cite Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing the message. You see, the most that a miraculous sign can do is to simply confirm the message that's already been spoken. That's all. The main thing is the message. Faith comes by hearing the message. You see, signs merely confirm the message. So they're looking for miracles. They're looking for signs, and they believe they're entitled to it. Number two, miracles on demand are a request from hell. 
diabolical. I cite Luke 4 there where Jesus is being tempted. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. He leads the Lord up to a high point on the temple and he says, cast yourself down from here. You know, if you're the Son of God, God will send angels to uplift you and hold you up and protect you lest you dash your foot against a stone. Do it. Miracles on demand are a request from hell. It is unbelief in action once again. And number three, entitlement thinking, and that's what's going on here. Entitlement thinking frustrates grace. It frustrates grace. It, it robs you of the joy of giving. When someone demands or expects or feels entitled to whatever it is you have, you don't want to give anymore. It's like paying taxes. How many people enjoy paying taxes? Now, I hope you pay your taxes, but you don't enjoy it. Why? Because it's coerced from you. If you don't pay your taxes, you'll pay a heavy price. So reluctantly, we turn it over, you see. It destroys giving. It creates a reluctance to give. That's what entitlement thinking does. When someone feels they're entitled to whatever you have, it just turns off the spigot of willing generosity. And that's the spirit of the Lord at work, willing generosity. But you see, we don't believe in the Lord, so we extract our pound of flesh from whoever it is we feel owes us something. That's a lack of faith. And the government, being the government, they bear the sword. They don't operate on faith. It's coercion. That's the way they operate, and that's the way it is. That's okay. That's them. That's not us. It should not be us. Letter B, grace is given only to those who have absolutely no claim on God. No claim on God. I cite verse 18. To proclaim good news to the poor, that's Jesus' job description. The poor are those who have no claim on God. And I cite John 2. This was the gospel reading from last Sunday. Um, Jesus turning water into wine. He receives this request from his mother. And, and I interpret it as a request. You know, they have no more wine. Some commentators say, well, it's not a request. It's just information, FYI. Uh, but the way Jesus takes it is as a request because he responds in a rather gruff way. Uh, woman, and I know he, he refers to other women as woman, but this is his mother, after all. You don't refer to your mother as woman. He says, woman, what have you to do with me? My hour is not yet come, meaning the hour of my glorification isn't here yet. The glorification in John's Gospel is always the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord. That's the point at which he's aimed. That's his mission. That's his goal. And you want me to, to, to spring glory prematurely. You see, it's, it's not time to do that. And so what does he do? He puts her in her place. See, the time of her authority is over. She has no claim on him. Jesus would never allow kinship to come between himself and his mission. You read the Gospels. That's the way it is. So he puts her in her place, and she accepts it. 
Her faith clings to him, even if he rebuffs her. And she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you, you see. That's faith. And when Jesus has made it clear that she has no more claim on him, then he does the miracle, <laughs> you see. She believed that he would be merciful even when he rebuffs her. And my friends, there will be times in life when you feel rebuffed by God. There will be times in life when you feel like, he's not hearing me, he doesn't care. You cling to him in faith like Mary is. She is our teacher. She would not give up on him, even though it felt as if he gave up on her. Grace is given only to those who have no claim on God. I cite Romans 10, 20. I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. That's grace at work. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. It's pure gift, undeserved, unasked for, unearned. And Jesus will not give to those who make demands upon him because that would cause them to trust in their ability to manipulate him rather than to trust in his mercy. He won't play that game with people. You make demands upon him and he just shuts down. Roman numeral two, Jesus accepts rejection. He does not avoid rejection, he knows it's coming. He knows that his values, his mission are at odds with the world just as ours are. He does not avoid the rejection. He does not take revenge because of it. He doesn't commit some crime in response to it. He accepts it. I would go so far as to say that he embraces it. He knows it's going to be a part of his mission. And he can accept it because, letter A, he knows who he is. You know, there's so much identity confusion today, especially among young people, there's so much identity confusion today because there's no knowledge of God. When you know next to nothing about God and his mercy and what he's done, that he is your creator and he is your redeemer. See, that marks us, that identifies, I mean, we identify ourselves in light of who he is and who he is is what he's done. But where that knowledge is absent, identity is just all over the place, it's confused. Well, Jesus knows who he is and whose he is. You know, at his baptism, the voice from heaven, that Trinitarian moment, second person of the Trinity steps into the water, the third person of the Trinity descends, and the first person of the Trinity speaks, this is my beloved son. With him I'm well pleased. He knows who he is. And it is that knowledge that enables him to weather rejection because when you are rejected by someone else, it's because they are redefining you. They're defining you in a certain way. It may be true, it may not be true, but they're running with their own definition of who you are, and you better have your definition based in Scripture, based in your baptism, based in God's declaration that you are His forgiven child, regardless of what they say or do. That's your bulwark against the world's misconception of who you are. Letter B, his rejection equals our acceptance 
with God. He who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. His rejection leads to his death, and his death leads to our forgiveness. He pays the penalty for our sins. The wages of sin is death, and the wages paid at the cross. Number one, his rejection, it's, it foreshadows, it prefigures his death and resurrection. That's what's going on in our gospel reading for today. Verse 29, they rose up and they drove him out of the town. Well, you know, when Jesus was found guilty, well, of course he's an innocent man, but he's, he's found guilty of insurrection. They drive him out of the town. He's crucified outside of the city of Jerusalem, right? So they could throw him down the cliff. That's so, you know, when you stone somebody, you, you, you get more, you, you get gravity working with you, you know, when somebody's down below you. So that's the idea. They're going to stone him to death. So this prefigures his, his upcoming death, right? And then verse 30, but passing through their midst, he went away. Now, commentators are debating about this. Okay, well, how did that happen? What, what does that mean? Uh, he, he, uh, it's almost a miraculous deliverance from death. You see, and, and that's what the resurrection is. It's a miraculous deliverance from death. And, and all of this prefigures that saving work of Jesus. And number two, it also prefigures the Gentile mission. Because what's going on here is, he, he's coming to his own people, his hometown no less, and he's experiencing this sense of entitlement that you owe us more than you're doing out there among all those strangers. And he's experiencing this rejection. And then he cites two examples of when God's grace was rejected by God's people in the past, it goes to the Gentiles, you see. It did that in the days of Elijah, did that in the days of Elisha, it does it in the book of Acts. Some Jews believe, some Jews do not believe. What does Paul say? We're going to the Gentiles, if for no other reason than to make them jealous. Kind of a measure of last resort. You're going to be left out if you don't believe this good news. It's a loving appeal. And then Roman numeral three, he overcomes our fear of rejection. Jesus overcomes our fear of rejection. We can confront our own rejection the way Jesus confronts it because we know who we are. We know that God has made us and that he has redeemed us by the blood of Jesus. That defines who we are. That's our identity, you see. And it stands solid and firm against all the attempts of the world to redefine who we are. As hateful people, you know, we're, we're, we're the problem, we're just kind of knuckle-dragging throwbacks, you know. We've got to progress beyond this kind of thinking that you all promote. See, this is the world's view of you and me. Complete misunderstanding, but it's out there. We need to know that, and we need to know who we truly are, loved by God, and carrying that message of love to all the world. Letter A, we know whose we are, 
and who we are. My sheep hear my voice, Jesus said, and they follow me. We listen to the words of the Lord, we follow. John 17, he's talking about that we are strangers in the world, but the world, that we're not of it. We're in it, but we're not of the world. We don't belong to the world that is passing away. We belong to the world that is to come. And let her be. Jesus overcomes our fear of rejection because our cause is unstoppable. See, Jesus is unstoppable in our gospel reading for today. They have in mind to kill him, but it's not his hour for that to happen. So he passes through their midst. He goes on his way, journeying to Jerusalem. He's unstoppable. His mission will be fulfilled, and they will not prevent it. He goes to Jerusalem. He's journeying to the cross because that's who he is. That's his identity. He is the crucified and risen one. And we are those, our identity is shaped by that. We are those for whom he was crucified and for whom he rose. The world seeks to redefine you in any number of ways. The world wants to squeeze you into its mold. But the world's opinions pass away. The world's agendas all pass away. They don't last. But you are part of a much greater cause. You are part of something that abides. You are part of a kingdom that remains. When everything else is gone, this remains, Christ and those who are his. Long after every other opinion, every other cause, every other agenda has been forgotten. In Jesus' name, amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus, amen.